Well, I didn't know that Richard was going to give us a science lesson, or a sort of science lesson in parts. But so this morning we're actually going to start off uh, with some science as well. Um, have you ever noticed that the shape of things in the world, from the smallest to the largest, is the same? So you've got the apple. You have, hopefully. I think something's going to go wrong this morning. Here we go, let's try this. No? <coughs> it works earlier. <laughs> I got told once in the training meeting, you're supposed to say, I bet John Wesley never had these problems. <laughs> let's see. The one morning, it all depends on the PowerPoint as well, it's always oh, away. There we go. Okay. Have you ever noticed that uh, the shape is basically the same? So you've got the atom, right from the smallest. Big thing in the centre, orbited by much smaller things, electrons. The solar system, big thing in the middle, the sun, orbited by much smaller things. They're not even to scale, they're tiny compared with the sun. And in turn, the planets are orbited by moons, aren't they? Even at the level of the galaxy, there's a big bulge in the middle, and everything else goes round it. So that's the way that our world works, right from the smallest atom to the tiniest, uh, smallest atom to the largest galaxy. And this morning we're going to see that our world is also set up that way, not just physically, but spiritually too. Biggest and most important at the centre of everything is God, and everything else goes round it, goes round him on his throne. The Lord Jesus, through the vision that John wants us uh, to see this morning, sets this picture of God right as the foundation of the rest of the book that's going to follow. This is starting a new section in the book of Revelation, and all the things that will follow will flow from this throne at the centre. The setting of chapter 4 and the events of chapter 5 set in motion the rest of the book. So this morning we're just going to look at chapter 4. We're going to get half the story this morning. We're going to see God as almighty creator, ordering everything in the universe around himself, around his throne, according to his rule, under his control. As he writes to these struggling churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3, he wants them to know the reality at the heart of our universe. He wants them to know what's going on. So he pulls back the curtain and lets John take a peek into reality <coughs> the time in which we live, and which he uh, will live in as well, which we live in as well. But in doing so, he has a goal. Actually, he's shown them not just for sort of something interesting... But he wants to sustain these believers through hardships and allow them to see the spiritual reality that's going on behind our seemingly chaotic world. So three points this morning. First of all, there is a throne. Oh, there you go. There is a throne. Let me read you verses one to three again. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The voice that speaks to John here is Jesus. He was the one that had a voice like a trumpet in chapter 1. And he invites John to come and look through a door that is standing open in heaven. 
Now, heaven is not so much up there, though we sometimes talk about it that way, don't we? Heaven is the spiritual domain where God dwells. It's his home, if we speak of it that way. Heaven is a present reality that exists. This is not a future vision at the moment. This is just an unveiling of the present. A behind-the-scenes look at our world. What's really happening in our present reality. And what John sees is a throne. The throne is the executive seat of a king or monarch. It's where they, they execute their power from when they're sat on the throne. And John sees that there is someone sitting on this throne. At the centre of our reality is somebody sitting on a throne, a power, an authority. And what he's seeing really is that there's someone behind the scenes ruling our world. Not the Illuminati, not some secret society, not even, can I say, Her Majesty the Queen. Her 70 years on the throne will pale into insignificance compared to the one that sits here. What John sees is that at the centre of our reality, God Almighty sits on the throne. The ruler of the world is none other than God himself. And he sees him here, his appearance is dazzling. It's like jasper and carnelian. There are no stones experts, but these are expensive stones, precious gems. The city of God at the end of the book will shine with them. They're dazzling and they're precious. I think you're almost supposed to have the idea, it's almost blinded by the, the dazzling beauty of this, by the glory of what's going on. And around the throne is a rainbow. Now this is what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 1 when he sees the throne room of God. And it's a sign that this is the God of the covenant, the promises. The one who promised Noah he would never flood the earth again. And here the picture starts to get more difficult to draw. The rainbow has the appearance of an emerald. Sort of put a, a green glow there, that's not really quite getting the idea. How can a rainbow look like an emerald? An emerald's green, rainbows are all sorts of different colours. John is using these pictures to describe the indescribable. And yet emerald and jasper and carnelian, they've got significance in the Bible. They're part of the, the stones that would be on the high priest's ephod, so he'd wear a sort of special costume, and the twelve tribes would be represented by twelve jewels on there. All of these jewels appear in the city of God at the end of the book. The stones that these represent are the stones of Reuben, the eldest tribe, Benjamin, the smallest and youngest tribe, and Judah, the tribe from where Jesus came from. Those are the gems that we have here. And God shines with this glory, this magnificence of these gems on his throne. So at the centre of everything is our glorious, magnificent, splendid, beautiful, wonderful God. A God seen through his promises, through his reaching down to us. But he himself dwells in inapproachable light. So here he is there in all his beauty and glorious, uh, glorious and magnificence. He belongs at the centre of our reality. He is the source and the author of all reality, all being in the universe. There is a throne and God is sitting on it. And the first readers needed to hear this. When they were in danger of thinking that the Roman emperor 
was really the one who was sat on the throne, was the one that was really in power. They needed to be reminded that even though it might look like that on the surface, that actually when the veil is drawn back, that's not the case. Nero does not sit on the throne of heaven. Napoleon does not sit on the throne of heaven. Neither Putin nor Biden nor King John Un sit on the throne of heaven. God sits on the throne of heaven. He is the one that's in control. He is the one that's driving the action of history. The world that we live in is not out of control, is what he's saying. It is under God's control. And this is the God who had promised to be gracious to his people. And they needed to remember that as they were going through hard times. But equally, if you remember, there were other churches that John spoke to, that John wrote to, who were straying from the gospel, who were giving up their love for one another. And they needed to remember this too. There is an authority. There is one that we answer to. There is one that we are accountable to. That's also what the throne means. We are people under authority. So we're not free to just go our own way. We're actually to live under his rule. There is a throne and God sits on it. And that's something that our world needs to know as well, isn't it? There is a God and actually he is in control. He's in authority. We are accountable and answerable to him. But having established that, John is given a tour of the throne. A tour around the throne. Let me read you verses 4. Actually, just verse 4 to start with. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, with crowns, golden crowns on their heads. First he sees God's people around the throne. Okay, let me show you the I'll try to do this in the picture, we'll see how it goes. There we go, 24 thrones, and people with crowns sat on the thrones. Here, the 24 elders symbolise God's people. Now, there's some debate whether these are actual angelic creatures who really do stand around the throne of God. But I don't think we need to see it this way any more than we need to believe that God literally has a rainbow around him uh, in heaven. It's symbolic. It's trying to show us something by the pictures he's using. There'll be different pictures for the same things later on. And even if they are angels, they're symbolic of God's people. They're clothed in white garments. We've already seen God's people are clothed in white garments in chapter 3 in the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. They wear crowns. Again, Christians are spoken of as wearing crowns in chapter 2 verse 10 and 3.11. They sit on thrones. And we've been told last time that those who overcome would reign with Christ. Always makes me think of uh, Narnia. I don't know if you're into the line, the witch in the wardrobe. But the, the children at the end... Uh, just before the end, they become kings and queens of Narnia. They get to sit on four thrones in front of the people. But really they are kings and queens under Aslan, the true king of Narnia. They still get to reign under him. It's that sort of picture. And they're also called elders. Not angels, but elders. Elders were leaders of groups of people in the Old Testament, and they were leaders of churches in the New Testament. If that's not convincing enough, there are 24 of them on 24 thrones. Now we've met some numbers so far in Revelation 7, which would be standing for perfection and holiness and completeness. We've met 10, which meant some or a few. Uh, 24 is two lots of 12. 
They got maths as well as science this morning. Wow, really pushing the boat out. But 12 in the Bible is nearly always to do with God's people. So there are 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There are 12 apostles in the New Testament. And if you think I'm reading too much into this, well, Revelation treats them this way too. At the end of the book, we're presented with the New Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people. It's got 12 gates and 12 foundations. It's 12,000 stadia wide and high and long. So it's a big cube at the end. There are walls that are 144 cubits thick, which again, my maths is not amazing, but that's 12 times 12, I believe. And what's that all about? Well, it tells us that the 12 tribes are inscribed on the gates, and the 12 apostles are inscribed on the foundations. God's people, Old and New Testament. And it's the same here. These 24 elders represent God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. But what's significant is not so much who they are, but where they are. They are around the throne. God is in the centre, and it's sort of like they're in orbit around him. He is the focal point, and their lives revolve around the king. Back in the day, we used to believe that the earth was the centre of the universe, and that the sun went round the earth. So important were we that we believed everything else in the universe went around us. Well, these elders have understood something that took scientists generations to discover. The world, when we look at it truly, does not revolve around us, does not revolve around me. The world revolves around God. And that includes me and my life, you and your lives, all of our lives, or at least it should do. It's a really basic, simple truth, isn't it? But so often we get this wrong. We try to get God to revolve around us. We say, this is what I want from life. Now, God, where do you fit in? How can you get me what I want? We order our lives what, with what our will is, rather than what his will is. What we want, rather than what he wants. And when we do that, really, we're making a grab for the throne in the centre, aren't we? We fall into the same trap of the devil who wanted to rule in God's place. God's people here are pictured as people whose lives revolve around God. They are around the throne. But there are some parts here that are not around the throne, but before it. So the spirit and the sea are before the throne. Let me read you verses 5 and 6. And from the throne came flashes of thunder, uh, sorry, lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So, here we have lightning and thunder and flashes come from before the throne. There we go. Very exciting. Um, the picture there is like Mount Sinai. It reminds us of God's otherness and unapproachability. That it's an awesome God that sits on the throne. So what then could be before the throne? Well, we see seven burning torches. Which again, we're helpfully told, if we can't work it out, are the seven spirits of God. Again, Revelation reminds us that we're not really supposed to think of these things as literal. It's not that there are literally seven torches, because we're told that this is a vision. And it represents uh, seven spirits of God. 
But that really is the Holy Spirit. Remember that idea of perfection by seven? The perfect spirit, the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now the reason why he might be shown here as seven torches, is could be a temple thing again. If this is the throne room of God, the sort of temple of God. Then in the temple there was a branched menorah, seven branched menorah in the temple that would burn before the Lord. But really it's the picture behind it that's important. This is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not around the throne as though he were sort of God's minion or inferior. He's not in orbit around God like a creature or one of his servants. He is before God. He's in a different category to the angels and the people of God and the servants of God because the Holy Spirit is God. He's not some sort of inferior to the Father. He is equal with the Father. He's pictured here separately because he is active in the world, bringing God's will to the the people around, working out God's purposes in the world. He's a sort of go-between between the two, but not as a separate power. He's the one who's also on the throne in a way. That's why he's before the throne. But the sea here is also pictured as before the throne. But the sea is something else. Again, we see a link to the temple. There was a wash basin known as the sea, the same word. But it seems more like an actual sea is meant. Another clue that this is not the future, by the way, not the end, is that at the end there is no sea in the book of Revelation. But here the sea is made of glass, like crystal. In other words, it's see-through and it's still. See-through and still. The Holy Spirit appears with the sea at the beginning, if you remember, Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. At that point there were the waters of chaos. But here the chaos is stilled. The darkness is cleared. The sea is see-through. Now we might enjoy the sea, we might go to Scarborough to enjoy a bit of... uh, uh, the seaside is a place of fun for us. But the sea was a dangerous place for the Israelites. Their enemies came from the sea. Sea monsters came from the sea. And pretty much in the Bible, when, any, anyone, just, when anyone goes out to sea, there's pretty much always a storm. You notice that? It's always one of those, oh, they're going to sea, oh no. You know what's going to happen, don't you? But before God, the sea is still. is calm. Before God, the sea holds no danger. In other words, before God, there is total tranquility and security. Storms may rage on earth, but not in heaven. God is calm. There is no panic stations here. There are no emergency centres. There's no cobra planning meetings. The picture that we have from God's perspective is that there are no real threats here. No dangers. He is sovereignly in control, even over the chaos of the sea. Only the thunder and lightning that we see here is the one that comes from the throne, not from the sea. He is in control of all this, not subject to it. Next in our tour of the throne, there's the sea. Next in our tour of the throne, all creation around the throne. Let's have a look at verses 6 to 11 to start with. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
if it wasn't strange enough in our vision already, we now see four strange creatures around the throne. This is imagery, again, from Ezekiel chapter 1. And what we have represented in these creatures, really, is the whole of creation. Wild animals like lions, tame animals like oxen, human beings being part of the created order, and birds represented by an eagle. It's a link again with the temple. So in 1 Kings 7, there's a similar combination of animals described on the temple. But why is it there in the temple? Why is it here? It's to harken back to creation. Really, to Eden, where the created order was perfectly and willingly under God's control. The number is, again, a clue. Four in the book of Revelation is often used for the whole of creation. So it speaks of the four corners of the earth, the four points of the compass, the four winds of the earth. So just keeping it in Revelation without going anywhere else, Revelation 7, verse 1. And this I saw, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth, or the sea, or any tree. Four has to do with the created order, the whole wide world, including mankind. But then we start to get some really strange details about this that make it a little bit strange. The creatures are covered with eyes, uh, all around Really what it means is that, in that sense, creation sees everything. As God's agents, there's nothing that is hidden from their sight. And they have six wings each. Now this is like the angelic seraphim in Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6 verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with which he co- two with which he covered his face, two with which he covered his feet, and two with which he flew. These wings there in Isaiah seem to enable them to be in God's presence and do his bidding. They're able to move around and they act as God's servants for God's purposes in the world. So creation is also in orbit around God. It's not the other way around. God is not doing what creation wants. Creation does what God wants. It serves him. It does his bidding. He is in control of it. By the way, they probably should be a little bit closer to the throne from the picture, but can't quite fit them in, uh, in between. But creation is doing what God wants. And that's more controversial than you'd think. But we're clearly told that God works all things for good for those who love it. That includes the natural order. Even things that we wouldn't think of as miracles, just the mundane. So the weather, the traffic as part of human experience, the sunshine, the rivers, even sickness, earthquakes. I think it would completely change my perspective if I could just remember that the traffic and the weather serve God in my week. If I remember that when the weather is not what I want, it's serving what God wants. When the traffic is not what I want, there is a reason. Creation ultimately serves its creator. But amazingly, we see that creation's not just there for that. John finishes with a wonderful fundamental truth about our creator God and his relationship to the world. So lastly, creation plus God's people equals worship. Creation plus God's people equals worship. Let me read to you eight to the end. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes uh, all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Creation here is pictured as speaking. Not a new idea, so Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. Creation is speaking, but what is it saying? Well here it is speaking of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That was the message of the seraphim back in Isaiah 6, and it sort of mashed up with God's revelation about himself in Revelation chapter 1. Creation tells of God's holiness and God's eternity. This is John's way, if you like, of telling us Romans 1 verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation speaks of a creator and his nature. It speaks of God. But who hears? Well, God's people, the elders. They're the ones who hear in this passage. Whenever they hear it speak, they worship. They bow down. Creation sings the Father's song, and God's people respond in worship. They worship with their own song. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's saying that just by virtue of God being sat on the throne, just by virtue of him being creator of all things, he is worthy of all glory and honour and power. There's more reason, that's coming in chapter 5, but if you think about that hymn that we sung before, How Great Thou Art, it's just the first couple of verses. All the works thy hand hath made, when you wander through the forest glades and brooks and gentle breeze. The next verses are coming, but that's next week. But it's saying, even just as creator, God is worth all the glory and honour in the world. And that should make our soul sing, how great thou art, shouldn't it? The problem is that naturally, we don't honour God as creator. It doesn't do that. Paul continues in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, or give thanks to him but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Left to ourselves, we don't see what creation is pointing us to. When we see the wonder of the world... The Bible says we go and worship something other than our creator, even the thing that we're looking at. But that's not how we were created to be. We were created to worship our creator. Not because he's on an ego trip, but because that's right. God is at the centre. And true worship puts God at the centre. It is all about him. And that's what true worship is. It's not so much about hymns, 
but about him. Hymns and songs play their part, but true worship is that bowing down before God, casting our crowns before him, saying, I'm not really the king, you are. I'm not really what it's all about, you are. You wear the crown in my life, you sit in the driver's seat, you wear the trousers, whatever illustration you want to use. Worship is whatever shows God to be worthy. The word in English is used, uh, used to be worship. That's what the, where the word comes from. You are worthy of everything. Everything I am and have and ever hope to be, all of it belongs to you. Imagine, I know it's been the Jubilee this weekend, imagine Her Majesty the Queen coming before the one on the throne. Who bows? She does. Taking off her crown, imagine that, coming before him as a subject, not as a king or a queen. That's what these elders are doing, that's what we are to do. It's saying this rule, this reign, this life I have, belongs to you, the true king. And that can be expressed in hymns and words, but it's mostly expressed in a thousand decisions in a day. Decisions to put God first from the moment we wake up to the moment that we fall asleep. Everything, not an hour or so on a Sunday, not an hour or so with a worship CD, every waking breath belongs to him. Just as our creator God, he's worth everything, glory, honour and power, to be loved with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And when we look at things that way, we begin to see our problem, don't we? We're going to see next week that God will look out on the whole of creation and find that no one else is worthy. No one in the whole of creation does this as they ought to. No earthly creature truly reflects this heavenly reality. But there is next week. Because you notice what's mostly absent from our picture? The Lord Jesus. And as we'll see, he is the solution to that problem. He is the one that's worthy. Spoiler alert. And we can't miss that out as we begin to apply. We can't miss out the Lord Jesus. So as Christians, by Christ, we are restored to play the part that we were supposed to play. And the elders here, in that sense, are our model for what we were made to be. Our lives are supposed to be ordered with God at the centre and all of the things around him. Our lives are supposed to be in orbit around our king. And when we put God at the centre of our lives, when we do that, we reflect the way that things are supposed to be. But so often, speaking about myself as well, we put other things at the centre, don't we? Good things, but not God things. Might be work, or family, or sports, or money, or holidays, or retirement. And we make everything else fit round it. But whatever it is, it's not God. And when we centre our lives around them, we worship them. We might not sing hymns to them, but we declare in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, that they are worthier than God to be at the centre. The danger, you see, is that we worship God with our lips, but we worship something else with our lives. But we were made to worship the worthy one, our creator God. Maybe this week we need to deliberately spend some time in the woods and forest glades and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. See the stars, hear the rolling thunder. 
just to remind ourselves of the awesomeness of God. Not instead of reading the word or coming to church or praying. We need those things too, partly to understand what we're seeing. But if we miss this one, creation plus God's people equals worship, then we're going to miss out on understanding God's glory, aren't we? Maybe we should set some time aside this week, even half an hour, to go remind ourselves of the greatness of God as creator. If you can't get outside, why not stick on one of those David Attenborough documentary things? I've got a friend uh, who watches them with the sound off, puts some relaxing music on in the back. That's not me, by the way. Um, but uh, I've got a friend who does that. Seeing the wonder of creation. Because from the smallest atom to the largest galaxy... It's there as fuel for our worship of God, who is even greater than those things. And they remind us that he is at the centre. So let's do that this week. Put him at the centre of all things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are worthy of all our praises, all our worship, all our lives. Father, help us this week to show that in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. Father, help us to put you at the centre and all of the things around you. Father, we know that that's hard and none of us is worthy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, though, who is. Help us to look to him in the midst of that. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.